0: This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55am, Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true, that if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change.
1: Welcome to the Beyond Zero Emissions radio show. My name is Vivian Langford. And I've chosen the best of our 2016 season, as well as some climate action podcasts from other sources, which I hope will inspire you. George Monbiot's book Heat was the first one to talk sense to me about climate action. He went through every sector of the economy and showed how we could phase out fossil fuels and bring on renewable energy. This fitted in with the Beyond Zero Emissions vision I was already participating in. Bombio could only see a few things like cement and aviation fuel, which would be impossible to replace with renewables.
2: The The only course of action as far as flying is concerned is greatly to reduce the number of flights we take, and we're talking about a reduction in the region of 90%. And this is very tough, this is very hard for people to contemplate, not least those people who have love miles. Now, uh, love miles is a phrase I came up with in writing this book, which describes the distance between you and the people you love. If you have family in Australia, if you have a friend's wedding to go to in New York, you have love miles of those people. And you feel a moral obligation to redeem those love miles,
0: <laughs>
2: and uh, you're all laughing because I'm sure you've all got them, and you understand what I'm talking about. And, Here we see two valid moral codes in irreconcilable antagonism. It is wrong not to go to your best friend's wedding in Cape Town. It is also wrong to go there. And in climate change we see the requirement for a whole new moral code.
1: That was George Monbiot. You can read his articles in The Guardian and at his website. Now here's his conversation courtesy of the Elephant Podcast... And thank you very much to Kevin Kanes, who made it available to us. The podcast is called, How Did We Get Into This Mess? The
2: the alternative to hypocrisy is not moral purity. The alternative to hypocrisy is cynicism.
3: That's my guest today, George Mombio, a journalist and weekly columnist for The Guardian newspaper. He's one of the foremost progressive thinkers in Britain today. In his writings, he takes on a range of social and political topics, but he's probably best known for his work tackling environmental issues. He's authored several books, including Heat, How to Stop the Planet Burning, a 2006 book on climate change. Most recently, he's written Pharaoh, a book where he talks about the potential of rewilding, or reintroducing species that have been wiped out from their former habitats. In his columns, Mabio often draws the connections between how the environmental and climate crises we're facing are intimately interconnected with other traits of our society. For example, the enormous concentration of corporate power. It
2: is by far and away the greatest threat to democracy. And because it's a threat to democracy, it's a threat to the survival of human civilization and much of the rest of life on this planet.
3: Or the runaway consumerism that has us gripped. You know,
2: these are not essential components of human happiness we're talking about here, but they are essential components of economic growth.
3: In our conversation, we also talk about what would happen if governments actually did walk the talk on climate change and why they're so reluctant to do so.
2: This would be basically a straightforward contest for survival between fossil fuel companies and governments, and it's not totally clear to me which one would win.
3: And we also talk about why, in his view, the root cause of climate change goes well beyond capitalism.
2: You know, we say, well, it's this particular system that, that we're in, which is a problem. It's not. It's, it's a lot deeper than that. And, and I'm slightly worried that we end up misframing it.
3: That's George Mabio. So let's get right to it. Hey, Kevin. Hi, George. Yes, that's me. How are you doing? Good. And you? Yes, I'm fine. You know, I, I wanted to start off by asking you about the Guardians campaign, or at least about the the idea that I think they've really done a great job in spreading in terms of leaving it in the ground, leaving fossil fuels mm-hmm. in the ground as the the main challenge that we need to do in saving off the climate crisis. Now, I, I thought this was a sort of a a new way to think about climate change, more or less, like through Bill McKibben and 350.org, the people who've been working on this. I thought it was relatively new, Um, but I was surprised to find out when I was researching that uh, you actually first coined this term way back in in 2007. Can Mm. can you talk to me a bit about how uh, your evolution to that thinking came to be? Because before, the focus, I think, of the entire environmental movement was on just individuals reducing their consumption.
2: Yeah. Well, I I had just published a whole book about how to tackle greenhouse gas emissions um, and to get a 90% cut in emissions while maintaining a reasonable quality of life in the developed nations, a book called Heat. And um, it wasn't until a few months after that, in 2007, when I started working with people campaigning against open-cast coal mines here in Britain, that it suddenly hit me with tremendous force that we were missing something huge here, something which should have been obvious from the outset, but because of the way the problem was framed, even I, who had just spent three years working on the issue, had completely missed it, which is that we were talking entirely about our consumption of fossil fuels without talking about the production of fossil fuels. And that if you attempt to deal with a problem only at one end, only at the demand end rather than the supply end, you are almost certain to fail because the supply end will continue to undermine the demand end. And this is especially the case with climate change, where the measures we deploy to try to reduce our emissions tend to be weak and negotiable, whereas the extraction of fossil fuels from the ground is a hard fact. Um, that is a non-negotiable fact, and when they have been extracted, they will be burnt, regardless of, of what those weak and negotiable measures might say. So unless you restrain the extraction, you are not going to solve the problem. And, and this came to me uh, when I was sitting on top of an enormous machine. A bunch of us had, um, had swarmed into an open-cast coal mine, which was just being started. It was going to be uh, the biggest active mine in Britain. It was strongly opposed by local people. It was going to make a substantial contribution to undermining our country's own carbon targets. So we decided to try to stop the work. It's in a symbolic way. Obviously, we weren't going to be able to stop the whole operation, but to to close it down for a day.
3: So you were basically breaking in and trying to get in the way.
2: Yeah, well, we, we climbed onto these huge um, extraction machines, Um, to stop them from working, which we, we did successfully. And it was sitting on top of one of these things. I was thinking, unless this stops, everything I've just written in my book is a complete waste of time. So why is all the focus on changing light bulbs and having more efficient means of transport and stuff and not on what I'm seeing right here under my feet, which is the coal being extracted from the ground in the first place? And so suddenly... I, it, it hit me, and I wrote this article saying, "Look, I have the answer. I've found this um, fail-safe means of carbon capture and storage, which is called leaving fossil fuels in the ground."
3: Why do you think? I mean, it's such an obvious point once you actually think about it. And I mean, it seems strange that the, it wasn't framed in those terms in a way. Why? Why do you think we we missed this point earlier?
2: Well, you use the term framed, and you're quite right to do so. And the frames, the mental structures through which we perceive the world are absolutely crucial in determining the limits of that perception, in in telling us what is there to be seen, and what exists outside the box, which is not to be seen. And we talk um, of blind spots, things that we don't see as a society. But we don't really have blind spots. We have tiny vision spots, tiny spots of perception in what is basically darkness. And those are the spots where a, a flashlight has been shone on a particular issue and a particular way of looking at that issue. And we all focus on that. We all look at where the light is and we look at the thing that it illuminates and we fail
3: to see everything that surrounds it. I, I guess it's like how a magician's trick works.
2: That's exactly it. And, and what magicians are, are so great at is framing, is is saying, look over here. This is, this is what I want you to see, and this is the way in which I want you to see it. And so we all see it, and we all look without even knowing that we're being induced to do so, and we don't see all the shenanigans which are going on somewhere which is right there in front of us but we don't see it because of, of what we've been induced to see. And and this is the way the whole issue was framed from the very beginning of the process. So if you go back to the Rio Earth Summit in 1992, it's all about greenhouse gas emissions, and it's not about coal and oil and gas and leaving them in the ground. And, and I think it, it wasn't necessarily with bad intent. I think what had happened was that they... We're riding on the success of the Montreal Protocol, which dealt with the CFCs and the other chemicals which were damaging the ozone layer. And they thought, oh, well, there's a way to go. You know, we just stop producing those gases. And so they said, all right, we've got to stop producing greenhouse gases now um, to deal with climate change. Uh, but, of course, the thing with CFCs is that by stopping manufacturing the gases, you were stopping producing the gases. It was kind of all, all of one issue but in this case it's a two-step process. You dig the fossil fuels out of the ground then you burn them and there's two separate processes going on there and if all we're talking about is the burning of them, we're not going to deal with the issue.
3: One of the, I think, great points you make is comparing this to past struggles that we've had like slavery or the arms trade. If we were to try to you know, solve the international arms trade not at the producing end, but at the consumption end.
2: Yes, I mean, I mean, I I, I think I use the example of the biological weapons protocol, uh, which you know prevents states from using weaponized anthrax or smallpox or all of these horrible things which they might otherwise be induced to use, and and if that were to say. There are no restrictions on stockpiling weaponized anthrax and weaponized um, smallpox. It's just that we don't want you to use them. Well, how effective do we think that would be? You know, if you had 50 states, each with a massive stockpile of these really unpleasant weapons, and you have a situation like Syria at the moment, do you really think they're not going to use them if they've got them? Uh, The only way that, that the protocol is effective is that it forbids both their use and their ownership it's how it forbids having them in the first place so it's the production and the consumption which are both banned you're not allowed to make them you're not allowed to store them you're not allowed to use them but in this case we are allowed to <laughs> we're allowed to dig the fossil fuels out so we're kind of making them we are allowed to store them but we're trying to prevent being used it's just not going to work and if you want a good example of how that sort of thing doesn't work well look at the u.s gun laws you know you can you can all have guns hey folks you can all have guns just don't use them if you use them you're going to go to prison well if everyone's got guns they're going to get used
3: i imagine you obviously must be most uh, familiar with the british example but would you say this is characteristic of uh, a lot of governments this sort of uh this divided mind, divided strategy, uh, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense?
2: Well, very much so. And a classic example is President Obama, who, from the climate change point of view, is a lot better than his predecessors and probably a lot better than his successors. Um, And uh, within the course of three weeks, he, first of all, granted final permission for Shell to do exploratory drilling in the Chukchi Sea, Uh, with horrendous consequences had it found sufficient oil reserves to make it viable for um, exploitation to go ahead, and thank goodness it didn't. Um, And then three weeks later, he pitches up in Anchorage and says, oh, isn't it terrible what's happening to the Arctic? Um, It's all this burning of fossil fuel which is causing climate change and it's melting the ice and um, the Arctic ecosystem is in serious difficulty as a result. And you think, is this the same man speaking? Can he not see the contradiction between these two policies? It's not exactly subtle. Here we're not talking about a slight nuance in policy between trying to protect the Arctic ecosystem from the impacts of fossil fuel production and allowing fossil fuel production to take place within the Arctic ecosystem. But because of the way these issues are framed within politics and within the media... You can happily sail through life without even acknowledging the contradiction, let alone having to address it.
3: But why do you think that's possible? Like, w- w- what is actually going on here? That, uh, like, do you think it's, it stems from our own cognitive dissonance that the, the majority of us have when it comes to this problem?
2: I, I, I partly, but I think also it, it comes back to the framing issue with which we began. You know, because climate change has been framed as an issue of what we do to minimize our consumption once the fossil fuels have been extracted from the ground is almost as if the extraction of fossil fuels just occupies a different part of the mind and those two bits of the mind are just not connecting over this issue and they're not um there's just no read across but also it's a test of commitment I mean, if governments were really serious about climate change, obviously the first thing they would do would be to press for for fossil fuels to be kept in the ground. But they know that in doing that, they're going to go into head-on confrontation with Exxon, with Shell, with Peabody Coal, with all the huge fossil fuel corporations who are extremely powerful. And I think that could you know, test state power to its very limits and possibly even beyond. Were they to do that, they would find themselves in a huge fight. So instead, in the much easier political approach is to pretend to deal with climate change and, and say, you know, we, we, we want um, vehicles to become more efficient. And actually, we're not going to pursue them that hard if it turns out they've rigged their tests and are pretending to be more efficient than they are. Uh, we want people to have more efficient heating and lighting systems in their homes and offices and all that. And they're just playing with the problem they're pushing the food around on their plates to pretend they've eaten it um, whereas uh, if they were really serious about it um, they would be taking that huge political gamble of saying we've got to keep the fossil fuels in the ground but the, the fact that they're not doing that suggests that actually they're not really serious about dealing with climate change they're playing at it they, they want legacy they don't want people to turn around and say well you know Barack Obama or David Cameron They had the opportunity, um, while they were in that position of tremendous power, to have stopped this thing, which is now, 50 years down the line or whatever, utterly ripping our lives apart, and they failed to do so. They, They don't want to be in that position. They don't want to be seen as being on the wrong side of history. So they've got to play at the issue. They've got to pretend that it's being dealt with. But they don't really want to solve it. Because if they did, they would be taking a completely different approach.
3: It reminds me of a a line that I read in one of your articles that I really liked. You said that that creating silence requires only an instinct for avoiding conflict. Do you think that's going on here? Do you think they're conscious of the fact that if they were to actually take the steps required that they would be attacked? Or do you think it's almost uh, subconscious?
2: I think almost everything that takes place in politics is at least partly subconscious. Um, there, there are instincts for avoidance, So there, there are um, instincts for taking the easiest, quickest route to doing something, um, and that route is often about PR and spin rather than actually dealing directly with the problem that they confront. And, and, and in a situation like this, um, I- I- if you were directly to name the problem, which is getting fossil fuels out of the ground, and directly to address the problem... The fights we currently see over climate change policy, funded by you know all this sort of astroturfing and and kickback funded by people like Exxon, uh, they, they would be nothing by comparison to to the fights that would happen because this would be basically a straightforward contest for survival between fossil fuel companies and governments, and it's not totally clear to me which one would win. You know, fossil fuel companies are so tremendously powerful.
3: Really, so you you, you think they? Like if the government really cracked down on them, the fossil fuel industry could win
2: there are various means of um, making it politically impossible um, for for governments um, to save um, humanity from its own from its own destruction and and those means include operating through the media to effectively um, make almost anything government does just about impossible. It means uh, using your political allies to shut down governmental functions uh, 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 these are highly dangerous um, people who are running these organisations and they are ruthless and if cornered they are desperate and I, uh, I would imagine they would take extreme measures to, um, to protect their sunk costs to protect the their share prices which are dependent on their fossil fuel reserves and so uh, they, they will fight using every dirty tactic that exists. Now, I believe governments should have this fight. I, I believe this fight is essential. This is an existential issue for humankind. But you can quite understand why they want to avoid it. <laughs>
0: Has your organisation been interviewed on 3CR? Your band played live to air. Have you heard your latest song? Groups like yours can now become 3CR organisational subscribers. Just $110 gets your organisational group behind Melbourne's longest-running activist radio station. 3CR gives access and training to communities traditionally denied a voice in the mainstream media. Get online at 3cr.org.au or call 9419 8377 and become an organisational subscriber. Show your Your love, 3CR. 3CR.
3: Well, that goes into the, the next topic I wanted to touch on, which is the idea of uh, corporate power more generally. Uh, so I take it that you have the belief that to tackle climate change, we also have to tackle corporate power?
2: Mm. Um, y- yes, I, I do believe that. and um, we. I mean, corporate power defines the limits of politics at the moment. Um, it defines the limits of political debate and defines the limits of political action. And unless you can effectively confront and face down corporate power, um, it's not just that we lose on climate change, we lose on democracy. And, um, uh, th- it is by far and away the greatest threat to democracy. It is what turns what should be active functional democracies into nominal hollow democracies. Um, is what creates the post-democratic situation that we're in where we elect politicians um, and they put legislation through Parliament or or through the House of Representatives um, but actually the real power is elsewhere and the legislation they're putting through and the way in which they act that is governed by powers for which we cannot vote. Uh, We certainly can't vote them out Um, and so they go through the form and function of democracy but because the focus of power has shifted to another forum um, the changing of the outcomes does not take place through democratic measures and it's corporate power which is this great threat both to democracy and because it's a threat to democracy it's a threat to the survival of human civilization and much of the rest of life on this planet
3: I mean you you, you said that the focus of power has shifted so was it always this bad? Was it? Are you suggesting that it was it was better before? And if so, what, what do you see as the the cause of the shift towards corporate power away from governments?
2: Well, th- there was a period, um, and in the U.S. you would date it from perhaps the New Deal, nineteen thirty three to maybe nineteen eighty. In the U.K., probably nineteen forty five to nineteen seventy nine, as a period in which government reasserted itself and said we are here to represent the people not just a bunch of plutocrats we this is meant to be a democracy not a plutocracy and um and through that reassertion they regulated corporate power and economic power in such a way that it had to be responsive to the democratic will of the people of those nations and then We saw the neoliberal revolution kicking in in 1979 in the UK and 1980 in the US, which effectively said we are going to remove those constraints, that the economic power, raw economic power, will be unrestrained by effective social, fiscal, or environmental regulation. We will stop transferring wealth from rich to poor through taxation and public spending. We will stop the effective regulation of corporations to prevent them from polluting our air and water, from stripping the soil off the land, um, from mistreating their workers, mistreating their suppliers. Um, uh, We will take away the constraints that limit the scope of raw economic power um and and that process has been continuing ever since and, and in the UK regardless of whether there's a conservative government or a labour government in place it's continued pretty well unimpeded and so we end up now with a wildly different situation to the one we had just 30 years ago where our power at the ballot box is exceedingly limited our leverage is much weaker than it used to be before we can vote out the right-hand glove puppet or the left-hand glove puppet, but not the, the the corporate powers which are manipulating those puppets.
3: How did this happen? Would you say that the public was asleep at the switch? Essentially, was it uh, in slow motion? How how was it able to to happen seemingly continually for for such a long time?
2: There are a whole load of reasons for it, um, and. And one of them is the speed with which um, these revolutions take place. And and the UK at the moment is a very good example of that, where we have this um, extreme austerity agenda being pursued by the government. Uh, And when it took power, this agenda came in so fast and so far and on so many fronts that it simply couldn't be contested. Um, You know, people like me were struggling to try to defend the regulations preventing pollution and soil erosion, for example, uh, but at the same time seeing a hundred other assaults coming from other angles. And we just had to ignore those because you can't be effective unless you concentrate on one or two things. And there just aren't enough politically active citizens to confront all that at once. And so by the time the battle is over, you're just looking at a scene of carnage where just about everything, which I believe are the pillars of civilization, the, the things that make the difference between a decent society and a barbarous one, have been pulled down and burnt. And it's it, it does feel like being on a battlefield after a monumental rout, and all you can see is the armor and the corpses lying around, and, and smoke rising from it, and a society which was a functional civilized society has been reduced to a squalid, sordid place where the rich and the powerful get just what they want and other people have almost no power, almost no voice and almost no share of the resources, the wealth of
3: that society. It sounds a bit like uh, what Naomi Klein would say in the shock doctrine.
2: It is. I mean, her, her, her analysis has been invaluable and the way... She's demonstrated how um, they use crisis to pursue this agenda um, and they act incredibly fast. So they have a pre-prepared set of policies which are already very carefully mapped out, um, then use a, a real crisis or precipitate a fake one. And in the UK, we've seen a fake one. Uh, use oh we've got this massive deficit everyone must focus on the deficit let's frame all of politics as being about um, solving this deficit well we, we do not have a crippling deficit in this country we have a large deficit but many times in history before we've had a larger one um, it's by no means it's perhaps ranked somewhere in the top few hundred political issues but it's by no means the most important one but we focus and focus and focus on the deficit and the whole thing has got to be we've got to cut public spending cut public spending cut public spending and everyone goes along with this yes but what's the best way to cut it rather than say why on earth are we doing this this is madness we don't need to cut it at all and in fact by cutting it you're going to cripple us economically as well as environmentally socially and all the rest of it but the, the, the combination of creating a crisis exploiting that crisis doing it with tremendous speed and very cleverly monopolizing the debate so that everybody sees it through the frame, the crisis frame that you've created. This is a a critically important aspect of how these things are done.
3: And what do you think about her more recent arguments about, uh, I mean, we've been talking about how corporate power is connected to the climate crisis. What about her thesis that it's, it's even capitalism more generally that mm. is uh, the direct cause, or at least uh, interactively linked?
2: Yes, well, I'm, I'm partly sympathetic to that, but I think actually a lot of what we face is even deeper, even bigger than
3: capitalism. Oh, that's, that sounds uh, rather daunting already.
2: <laughs> well, well, in, in that you know, the great transformation which has taken place over the past 250 years or so worldwide has been fossil fuels. And regardless of the system which has made use of those fossil fuels, and you can contrast capitalism and communism, for example, the outcome has been catastrophic for the natural world and um, catastrophic for the long-term prosperity of of, of human beings. Um, In both cases, the tremendous amplification of human endeavour by fossil fuel which which has done tremendous things for us it's, it's delivered many benefits it's also greatly amplified our capacity to cause harm and and almost regardless of what system uh, what political system makes use of that amplification the result is a war on the natural world the result is is a massive destruction of habitats of wildlife of um, the earth's physical systems, the atmosphere, the oceans, um, uh, we we, we are destroying the ground on which we stand as a result of fossil fuels. Now, it's definitely the case that there are aspects of capitalism just as there are aspects of communism which have particular ways of exacerbating that assault. But the real problem is this, this endless growth, this endless increase in our capacity to lay waste to our surroundings uh, that we simply have not really taken responsibility for and not really even acknowledged you know we say well it's this particular system that that we're in which is a problem it's not it's it's a lot deeper than that and and i'm slightly worried that we end up misframing it
3: uh, on the idea of endless growth, one of the, I think, really clever things that you've uh, pointed out recently or has come up with uh, this hashtag called extreme civilization, <laughs> i.e. what is all of this growth and consumption for that we're being told is, is sort of the center of what our economic and political and societal system should should be based around. Can you talk to me a bit about this hashtag and where this came from?
2: Well, I, I, I launched this hashtag because you know, one of the things which strikes me is the extraordinary disjunction between the scale of the damage we're inflicting and the absolutely trivial and ridiculous uses to which we're putting that damage? So, you know, governments are very seriously sort of sit down and strike these massive treaties like TTIP and the Trans-Pacific Partnership because you know we we have to grow the economy and we had to be very serious about this, and they and be, but because. In the rich nations, amongst prosperous people who are the major consumers, of course, our needs have already been met. What it ends up with is more and more bizarre and extreme products and services in order to maintain economic growth. So you have Terry the swearing turtle, who, um, who, who, you know, you'll, you'll prod it and he'll come out with a, a string of expletives, um, or you'll have, um, an ipad stroller now you, you you can put your baby in the stroller and there's a slot to put the ipad in so they can they, they can be looking at the ipad rather than looking around them as as they're, as they're going along there's a portable watermelon cooler um, uh, a great big thing it's like a, it's a fridge it's a refrigerator on a trolley Um, uh, And there's only one thing you can put in, because it's got the shape and size to do that, which is a watermelon of a particular size, so you can take it to picnics, your portable watermelon cooler.
3: And so are you saying these things aren't essential for human flourishing?
2: You know, um, you could put it like that. (laughs) Uh, Basically, we are creating this explosion of junk, of completely useless, pointless stuff, much of which is designed, incidentally, to be given away. ...at Christmas and and, and other such occasions, not for anyone to use, but to make people snigger a bit. You know, you give it to someone as a present at an office party and they'll, they'll, you know, an inflatable Zimmer frame or something... ...and they'll laugh at it, and then they'll throw it away. It's never going to be used, it's never going to be seen again, it's never going to be displayed even. Uh, You unwrap it, you have a laugh, and then you throw it away. Um, it's like these electronic greeting cards. You open the greeting card and it plays a tune. Now, now that greeting card has got uh, the equivalent power of software of what launched the moon landings. And, and it's got this confection of complex electronics. You open it up, it plays the tune, gives you the greeting, and then you throw it away. And, you know, th- these are not essential components of human happiness we're talking about here, but they are essential components of economic growth and if economies are going to keep growing we have to continually find new stuff to consume and the stuff becomes more and more ridiculous as we go further and further and further in manufacturing needs and wants in order to induce people to keep
3: consuming there's one thing that's really stuck with me that, that you wrote about a couple times which is studies that show that it's the people who consume the least in the world uh, in, in various countries that uh on average, are most concerned about their environmental impact.
2: Yes. Yes, it's, it's very striking. What we've been constantly told is, oh, you have to get rich to care. You know, you, you, People aren't going to care about the environment until their basic needs are being met, until they've got enough food and shelter and stuff. It, all the surveys show exactly the opposite, that the people who care least are the richest nations, the people of the richest nations, like the United States, like the United Kingdom. We are the ones who care least. The people who care most in all the surveys are the people in the poorest nations, perhaps because they understand the issues more. They're closest to, to natural disaster. They can see it happen. They know what happens when natural disasters strike. They care. They see what happens when stuff is dumped in the river, when trees are felled and soil slides down the hill. They, they, they understand things in a way that we've forgotten. I mean, that's my explanation for it. Uh, but also, perhaps, they haven't had the empathy knocked out of them. They haven't had the care, the kindness knocked out of them by this 24-hour, 24-7... Crazy consumption treadmill that we're on, this hedonic treadmill, which just stops us from thinking, it stops us from feeling because it's just constantly um, coddling us, cushioning us in this security blanket of consumption so that we don't engage with our own impacts, we don't engage what we're doing to other people, we don't engage with what, uh, what we're doing to, uh, to other places. And, and the surveys consistently show uh, again and again that it's a total myth that you have to get rich to care. In fact, what, what seems to be very clear from the surveys is that the richer you get, the less you care.
3: That's, that's quite a scary thought.
2: Mm. Well, it is. And, and of course, uh, it's another, it should present another monumental challenge to the notion of economic growth being good for us. You know, Beyond a certain point, economic growth destroys our humanity.
0: it's lost in translation let it fail.
1: to Rachel Collis for that beautiful piece of music. That was from her album, Nightlines. And now we go back to hear climate activist and journalist George Monbiot in conversation with Kevin Kaners.
3: You know, I, I remember reading uh, a couple of essays. I think one was by Bertrand Russell saying that saying in the future, maybe, like because we've met all our basic production uh, standards, we'll have to work much less. Maybe we'll have mm. uh, work only four hours a day or something like that. Um, it, it sounds like those two things are connected. The fact that we're always working and, and producing more, by necessity, we'll, we'll consume more. Do you think that if we're actually going to take the steps required, we might end up in a, a future where we have more idle time?
2: It reminds me of the old um, Heinrich Bold story of the fisherman. Um, there's, there's a tourist comes up to this beautiful island and there's a fisherman leaning against a tree and the tourist says, um, uh, hi, what are you doing? He said, oh, I'm just sitting here watching the sunset. And he said, uh, he said, well, why are you doing that? He said, well, because I've done my fishing. I did a couple of hours fishing today and um, now I'm just chilling out, kicking back. And the guy said, well, you know, if you, if you got out there a few more hours... You know, you could um, earn the money to get a second fishing boat and then you could hire someone to take that boat out and then you could earn even more money and you could get a third one, a fourth one. You, you could build it up. You could get an empire here. You know, if you, if you were working 10 hours a day, not two hours a day, you, you could build yourself an empire. And the guy says, and then what would I do? Oh, anything you like. Kick back, watch the sunset, enjoy yourself. <laughs> and <laughs> it's a beautiful illustration of the sheer weirdness of the situation that we're in, that um, we keep promising ourselves that there will be a promised land at the end of this, that we will, when, when we've gone far enough through the tunnel, we'll come out into the light and then we'll have all those things which economic growth promised us and yet somehow it just seems to be elusive and we find ourselves working harder and harder it wasn't just bertrand russell it was Keynes, it was Marx. many other people predicted that we would hardly spend any time working but the people who spend no time working two hours a day the hunter gatherers on the whole and ever since then we've just worked harder and harder and harder doing more ridiculous hours and more ridiculous tasks because there are lots of more things that we can seek without causing harm in fact Well, doing a lot of good, more peace, more more peace of mind, more engagement with ourselves and with our children, our families, Uh, more time in the countryside, more time kayaking with dolphins, more time lying in in flowering meadows surrounded by butterflies staring up at the sky. Uh, I want more of all of those. I think probably most other people want more of that sort of thing. Uh, Why wouldn't we? more leisure time, more holidays, don't we want more of those as well? Actually, you know, there are many other ways of channeling that insatiability into some really great stuff. More learning. I want to know more about the world. I want to meet more people. I want to talk more. I want to spend more time thinking, as well as more time being and feeling and experiencing beauty and tranquility. And now, yeah, all of those are just as powerful as human drives, but of course they can't be packaged up and sold to us, and so no one's got an interest in promoting those and getting us to focus on those aims rather than on the aim of just filling up our lives with totally useless things like Terry the Swearing Turtle.
3: <laughs> now, I, I want to come to, we've talked a lot about how the, the situation is, is really bad. There's a lot we're up against, the, the corporate power and just uh, the inertia of the system, our own, the, the way life has been framed to us for the past several generations at the very least. You've talked a bit about how um, hyper-consumerism might be connected to the lack of nature. Um, or maybe e- ecological satisfaction. And you've also talked about how while it's important to focus on all these issues and, the, and to focus on what we need to stop, that you also think it's really important to have a sense of uh, of love almost or uh, a sense of joy that you're also fighting for at the same time. Can you talk a bit about that?
2: Mm. Y- yes, I, I mean, there's a couple of things here. First of all, we have to have a positive vision. If the only thing we have is a critique um, and is the opposition to the bad stuff that's being done, well, we render ourselves powerless um, because the most we can ever do is to fight the tide and uh, we might be able to slow it down, but it's going to come. Whereas if we have a positive vision, say here's a better world we could have, an, an accessible, a, a real better world we could have, um, that does two things. First of all, it encourages people to fight the bad stuff because you're trying to get to the good place and you have to get the bad stuff out of the way. And people, are, in my experience, become very frustrated with the bad stuff when they have a vision of something better. Um, that That's number one. But number two, it um, also keeps you going. It makes it less likely that you're going to burn out, uh, which is absolutely essential if you're going to be an effective campaigner and without being able to hold that better vision in mind without being able to see a better life than the one we have at the moment you're just going to have a nervous breakdown after a while and i've seen plenty of people end up like that plenty of really great campaigners really trying to make the world a better place but they just couldn't see the hope anymore and ended up in a really bad state well you know we've got to have a, a vision of a positive environmentalism and a, and a positive political program as well and I've been trying to develop some aspects of that myself too. but we've also got to be able to unhook ourselves from the madness of the world and just let go, let go of our our frenetic desires and embrace instead um, something much richer and deeper which can only be described as love. And that's love for each other, but also love for the world around us.
3: On that point, you, you've also pointed to research that says, you know, fear motivates survival and, and selfish thinking. So it seems to be if we, if we get too scared about the state of the environment, it could actually backfire.
2: There is there is a real danger that, that, um, that, you know, with all this sort of rhetoric about we've got X number of months to save the planet, um, we're all going to fry and the rest of it, you know, none of which might be wholly untrue. The The danger is that you fill people with foreboding and the result is a threat response. Right, I'm going to look after myself then. I'm going to go into survival mode, and to hell with everybody else, to hell with other people's interests, to hell with the long-term survival of the living world. I've just got to look after number one. Um, and you know, this is a well-established psychological phenomenon. This is how people react. Well, it's unsurprising, and um, and and people turn rightwards and and hunker down, raise the drawbridge. Um, it, we've got to really try to avoid provoking that response uh, by saying, look. Here are the ways in which we can do stuff, and here are the ways in which we can create a better world. And it doesn't have to be like this. Now, unfortunately, as time goes on, it becomes harder and harder to relay that message convincingly, because every year is a lost year at the moment. You you look at climate change, we've been talking about it now for 25 years, and there's been no effective progress at all. And, and it's all promises, promises, you know, well, next year, next year something's going to happen and um, just just hang on to that and then you'll see, oh, well, you no, know, it didn't happen this year, but next year it's going to happen. And you know, I've, been, I've been an environmental campaigner and journalist now for 30 years and, and I've seen this every single year, this promise being endlessly deferred. So you know, it does knock hope back and the fear does rise. I, I can't pretend otherwise, but we have to find where hope lies and we have to pursue those hopes. And, and this is why, for example, I've um, emphasized rewilding so much recently.
3: Right, because it's a way to ha- have a sense of, of awe and, and hopefulness for it, as in we could make something better happen?
2: It, it's a vision of a world that's better than th- today's rather than just slightly less bad than it would otherwise have been, which is the standard environmental vision, and being able to bring back lost habitats, bring back species which are missing from many places you know, you're not going to repair all the damage we're doing. That's, that's true, but but in some places, you can make a radical difference. And I believe that Britain, where I live, is one of those places.
3: But, I mean, like you just said, I mean, you've been working on this for 30 years, and things have only really gotten gotten worse. Have Have you struggled at all to walk that line, and have you ever been close to, to burnout?
2: Oh, yes, of course, yeah, no, many times. In fact, I, I, I made the decision this time around not to go to the paris climate talks because of the appalling experience i had in copenhagen where i i just felt so dejected and defeated afterwards that i was i was depressed for 2 months i could scarcely function for 2 months after it was, it was a really horrible experience and i'm just not putting myself through that again and and there've been plenty of times like that but at the same time because of my contact with nature Um, because of the people around me who I love, because of my deep and gripping interest in intellectual questions, um, the stuff uh, I'm trying to work out every day of my life, trying to get to grips with things, to understand them better. All these keep me going and get me up in the morning, usually in a state of great excitement. I wake up thinking, right, I'm going to do this today. And, and, And whether that thing is go to the library and try to pin down those figures which have been troubling me or go out kayaking with dolphins or take my um, three-year-old to the market and um, then go to the cafe with her afterwards, whatever one of those things it might be, that's an exciting thing which gets me out of bed um, with a spring in my step.
3: And so what would you say to those of us concerned about climate change because it seems really hard i mean you found rewilding which you're really passionate about and which gives you a lot of um you know kind of hope and and excitement for the future but if we're focused on climate change it seems like that's only something that that we can talk about in terms of negative and what we need to avoid
2: well there are ways and means and And one of them we have in the UK, um, something called the Transition Town Movement, which is saying, look, let's see the climate change uh, challenge as a positive challenge, a a challenge to create communities which are going to live much better, where there's going to be much more emphasis on local togetherness and engagement and um producing our food locally developing good transport networks developing effective housing and this will bring us together as a community and make us function better socially um so they've sort of reframed the challenge as a, a challenge to engage with positively rather than a challenge to engage with negatively to say we can enrich our social lives by taking action on climate and and that's that's a good way of going at it,
3: you know as as we've been talking about it, it's clear that we need a, a positive, hopeful vision of of the future in order to bring about a transition towards a sustainable future, but of course, it's going to take a lot of resistance too and and you've shown no shyness in um, in using resistance over the years, like you just mentioned at the start of the interview, uh, occupying the coal mine. And I was curious, as a young man, I read that you were in the Amazon for two years and and you got involved with uh, some indigenous people there and saw their resistance firsthand. And I was wondering what you learned from that experience.
2: Well, the people I really learned from were not so much the indigenous people, though I learned plenty from them too, but the the peasant activists in the northeast of Brazil, in the state of Maranhão, who were trying to prevent their land being stolen, um, by this coalition of big landowners, um, local police, the, the federal police and the state. It was a horrendous bunch of people arrayed against them. But with this incredibly effective political mobilization, they succeeded. And uh, this was before the big um, land movement, the Movimento Sainte-Terra, um, kicked off in Brazil. These were some of the sort of first activists at that time. And, and I found this a, an incredibly inspiring movement. It was, in many ways, my political education. Um, and, and I came back from a couple of years in, in Brazil feeling I understood my own politics for the first time. I came back to Britain and thought, oh, now I see what's happening. And now I see what needs to be done.
3: And, and what did need to be done there? In,
2: in that case, you know, I, I began to see that what I'd been witnessing in Brazil Um, was what had happened in Britain a couple of hundred years before, that basically a bunch of big guys had come and taken all the land and taken all the resources, and that people had fought them, but in the case of Britain, they would lost. And ever since then, we'd been struggling against this profound political and economic inequality caused by that historical land theft, which gave rise to so much else that went wrong, and that we'd been shut out through what at the time was called enclosure the enclosure of the land, actually had far wider ramifications than just the enclosure of the land. It was the enclosure of all sorts of power, political, um, cultural and social power, um, uh, concentrated into the hands of a very small group of people and others shut out. And and that reclaiming that power meant pulling down the virtual fences. It meant a, a democratic revival which would enable us once more to have a fair share of um, the resources both tangible and intangible which have been denied to us
3: well just to end off i mean it can be hard to imagine a-, a way forward or what what the future could actually look like where we get off this treadmill of both consumption and taking more and more from the world and as you mentioned both the capitalistic system and and communism both used fossil fuels and, and weren't exactly great for the earth either. Uh, through, through the conversation, it seems that a lot of what you're saying is that we need a change in philosophy, and then maybe from there we can start to build a, a positive future. I, I was wondering, like, how do you envision uh, a future, or how specific can you get? Because, yeah, as I mentioned, it, it can seem, it can seem h- hard to, to see where we might be going.
2: Well, what we don't want is some all-encompassing, all-encompassing utopia, which is designed from the outset, where all the questions are answered. Um, we've seen all too many times what happens when, when you try to create something like that. What we do want is a system which can keep changing. It's just like in a relationship. It's your ability to change is what keeps that relationship healthy, that you can just keep moving on and evolving and developing. And at the moment, in countries like ours, we're in a situation of arrested development where we can't really change our situation. We can't really change the trajectory on which we are. And that's because democracy isn't functioning properly. Um, So the democratic revival, usurping corporate power, the financial power, which has stopped democracy from working properly, bringing back centres of power to the places where we can vote people in or out that is absolutely essential prerequisite to any of the changes that we want to see happen and that then enables societies to evolve and develop as they wish to do Um, so what I don't want to do is to say this is how society should be in 2050 and this is how you should be living and I should be living and this is a sort of um, idea of social organization I've got I want to say this is how we need to start if we're going to get to whatever it is we might want by that date, we need to start now with a democratic revival.
3: And so would you say to ordinary people concerned about climate change and sustainability, I mean, we can we can just start even on our community level with democratic revival? Like as long uh, as we start taking those first few steps that we're, we're on our way?
2: Uh, I would say the first thing is don't rely on the media to do um, to, to do your outreach for you. You've got to do your own outreach and you've got to reframe the questions so that they actually um, create a wider view of the world and its problems and its potential solutions than the one that we are fed by the media. That is the first essential step. You are in possession of the most powerful medium of all, which is word of mouth, and you have to use that. But before using it, You had to stand back and say, what am I seeing and what am I not seeing here? What am I being induced to focus on and what am I missing as a result of that?
3: Well, you certainly have done a great job at uh, reframing things and uh, doing exactly that through your columns over the years and uh, it's been uh, instructive and and enlightening to read. George Mambio, thanks so much for joining me today.
2: Thanks very much, Kevin. A real pleasure.
3: That was my conversation with journalist and columnist, George Mombio. And if you're not already a regular reader of his weekly column in The Guardian, I highly recommend it. And it's all for the elephant this time.